we will go. That's, that's what this series that, that we are in has been all about, about, about advancing the gospel. You know, we will go to our neighbors. We will go to our schools. We will go to our cities. Uh, we will go to our nations to advance the gospel, to tell the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he can do for uh, people that are, are lost and far from God. It's about glorifying God, about making much of him. And so I hope that as, as we have been moving through this series, God is prompting your heart. God is giving you a burden and a passion to, to be willing to go wherever that may, may be. And for all of us, that is something different. For some of us, that is our neighbor. For some people, that is the cities. For some people, that is the nations. And so um, I pray that, that you, have, you are being changed and, and that your, your, your heart is, is opening up um, and, and you're getting a burden for, um, for our world. And, and every Sunday, you have an opportunity to to sign up to do something. And this morning again, out in the foyer, there is something you can do to go. And, and so I want you to be praying about that, and, and we'll be talking about that some more during our ABF time when uh, the REACH team from Roseville Mennonite Missions will be talking about what REACH is. Uh, we have a Montana team that's going to be talking a little bit about the Montana trip and what opportunity there is there. And so I encourage you to, uh, to stick around for that um, because I think this really can be a transformational time for all of us. This morning we have the privilege of having Kevin Mayer with us who is the director of, of the SEND department of Rosedale Mennonite Missions. And, and SEND is, uh, is REACH. Um, it is uh, City Challenge, which a lot of our young people and many of you have, have been a part of. Uh, Kevin directs all that. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving on the RMM board with him, and, and I, I love Kevin's passion and vision that he has for, for the REACH program, uh, for City Challenge, and just for missions overall. Kevin and his family spent three years in Spain, and, um, and so I just, I'm excited about what he has to say this morning. And so, Kevin, if you would come up, I'd like to pray for you, and we'll turn the time over to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, um, for Kevin, his family, Lord, for the work that you're doing uh, through them. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give him wisdom as he leads the SEND Department of Roselle Mennonite Missions. And now, Lord, this morning as he shares with us uh, the words that you've given him, Lord, we would continue to be challenged and changed and, and just have a deeper passion and desire uh, for lost people. And Lord, yeah. that you would just uh, uh, give us the courage to go. So we just pray a blessing on him and pray that you would use him up to challenge us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dwayne. I just want to say first off that it is a blessing, and a privilege, and an honor to be here with all of you this morning. And uh, it's just really good to share and worship with all of you. What I want you to do first this morning is to pull out the insert in your bulletin. There's an insert in there. It says, what is one person worth? That's our theme this morning. And what I would like you do, to do first is, as it says on here, to make a list of people you know who are not following Jesus. It can be friends, family, extended relatives, co-workers, neighbors, whoever. 
I would like you to write a list. It doesn't, just a few people in your life who you walk with, who you know, somebody that you, it could be one person, it can be five, but think of some people that are the closest in your life, people who are not following Jesus. Go ahead and make a list right now. If you don't have a pen, make a mental list. So you can think of at least a couple people in your life who are not following Jesus. Enough time? You can keep writing down some names if you think of more as we go along. We're going to actually uh, have story time today. I've got three stories that I want to tell you. You guys okay with stories? I don't know about you, but I can tend to remember stories better than just a list of things to do or not to do. And so it's a little hard to see maybe here, but we're going to actually have three stories. So we're going to look at story number one, story number two, story number three. And we're going to see how those three stories come together to make a point at the end that I hope is obvious to all of you. The last song we sang, Keith, great worship time, that last song is just a powerful way to start in to our session this morning about loving the lost, the broken, the needy around us, to go wherever God wants us to go. So let's go ahead and start off with story number one. And this is actually a story that a movie was made of. Uh, how many of you watched the movie Schindler's List? It's an older movie, uh, I forget, maybe 15, 20 years old. Um, it is a powerful movie that's based on a true story. Now, I just want to make this disclaimer. For those of you who have maybe have not watched it, I, if you want to run home and, and watch the movie, let me just say a few things. It's not necessarily a movie that I would endorse. It's a good movie based on a true story, but there are scenes that are quite disturbing and very graphic of the pain, anguish, and brutality suffered by the Jews at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. There are also some other scenes in this movie that I personally felt uncomfortable with and felt unnecessary to the plot of the story. But that being said, it's a powerful story of what one person can do to make a huge impact in the lives of many people. So let's dig into this story. You begin to see as the movie progresses, of this, this, it takes place in Eastern Europe, in Krakow, Poland, during World War II, and you see the Nazis versus the Jews. Now, the Nazis were trying to exterminate some other people as well, um, but the majority of their, their focus was on exterminating the Jews, the Jewish people. And so as the, as, as the movie goes on, you begin to find the main character of the story is a, name, a man named Oskar Schindler. Oskar Schindler was a shrewd businessman. He made millions off the war and off of Jewish investments and employees. Now, Oskar Schindler did not start off with good intentions. Like, he said, like I said, it was a shrewd businessman. He was out to make a lot of money, which he did. He made a lot of money off of the Jews. But then you begin to see that a bunch of Jews from Krakow were being rounded up, put in these cattle cars on trains, and taken to concentration camps where they would mostly be killed, most likely be killed by the Nazis there or else die from the elements. As you know the story during World War II, you know that thousands, perhaps millions of Jews were killed during this time. And you begin to see husbands and wives and parents and children who are being separated and sent to different places. Can you imagine what that would be like if that would have happened to you right now? Where your spouse 
your children or grandchildren, your brothers and sisters, your loved ones would be separated from you. And for most people, that was the last time they ever saw their loved ones. And as I watch that scene in the movie, my heart breaks thinking of what that would be like for Wendy, my wife, and my two children if that were to happen to me. How that would break my heart. But then you see a turning point in the movie where Oscar Schindler, he's looking out of the window. This is Oscar Schindler back here. He's looking out of a window, lost in thought. And he's contemplating whether to spend his millions that he'd made off of these Jews and to spend them on his retirement or whether he should do something that could possibly cost him his entire fortune. What's he going to do? And at that point, he decides to buy his workers back from the, from the try to buy his workers back from the Nazi concentration camps, so that they can continue working in his factories, but mainly, mainly so that they can live. And so he strikes a deal with Goethe, this man here, who is the head of the Nazis in this area, and he makes a deal with him to purchase back his people. And then the negotiations, Schindler says to Goethe, "All you have to decide." is how much a person is worth to you. And Goethe immediately interrupts him with a finger in his chest, repeating the same question with emphasis. No, no, no. How much is a person worth to you? And Schindler smiles. He has a deal. A very costly one. And so he sets the plan in motion. Suitcases full of money are exchanged, and he begins to tabulate a, a list of names. His helper, Stern, who is a Jew, types as the two try to remember each of their fa factory workers, every person they could think of that had ever worked for him. And this is the story of Schindler's List. One man who spends almost all he has to buy the lives of 1,100 Jews who are on their way to possible execution and death in the concentration camps. And at the end of the scene, Stern asked Schindler, what did you say to Goeth to have him give you all these people? And with a look of shock, it becomes clear without needing a response from Schindler, you're not buying them. You're buying them? You're paying for all these people? And at the completion of his typing, he lifts the, li lifts the list with a sense of reverence. He holds it up to his friend Oscar, with a newfound respect and says, this list is an absolute good. This list is life. Now, go back to the people you put on your list. Those you know who are not following Jesus. We have people all around us who need to be set free by the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, family, extended relatives, co-workers, neighbors. There are people all around us who need Jesus. Not that they're a project for us, but people that God has placed in our lives to show his love. You see, this list that you just filled out, this list is an absolute good. This list is life. And we so often go through life and do not think what's going on around us. Not surrounded by concentration camps and Nazis and gas chambers. It makes us easy not to sense the urgency of our day. We're going to come back to the story later. Let's move on to story number two.
And this is found in Matthew. You can turn in your, in your Bibles if you want. It'll be up here on the screen as well. Matthew 9. Very familiar passage that many people probably use. Maybe one of the other ones have used this passage before me as you've gone through this series. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And moving on in the chapter 10. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And then he goes on to describe the names of those twelve disciples. And then picking it back up in verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received freely give. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's a couple key words here that jump out at me as I read through this. The first word is compassion. Jesus had compassion on these people. But then the next couple, the next phrase really jumps out at me, the next couple words where it says they were harassed and helpless. He had compassion on people who were harassed and helpless. And I guess my question for us right now is to stop and think about whether or not we think of sinners as people who are harassed and helpless. Who do you think Jesus would see? How how do you think we would see things if we could see people the way Jesus sees them? If we could stop for a moment and see through the eyes of Jesus, how would we see those sinners out there? The druggies the prostitutes, the alcoholics. And the list goes on. How do we see them? Do we see them as harassed and helpless? Do we have compassion on people like that? What was Jesus' response to those sinners? He was filled with compassion and mercy and forgiveness and love. And I just want to stop right here when we talk about living with an eternal perspective. Things that will last forever. God's definition of what really, really matters is pretty straightforward. He measures our lives by how we love. And think about how that changes everything. When we live in light of the love of Jesus, love that we just sang about, and not out of religious obligation, not out of fear, not out of duty. And when we live in that love and our hearts are captured by it, Jesus begins a transformation process that compels us to see the lost around us 
the way Jesus sees them. And our heart begins to break for those who are not in a close relationship with them. When we begin to see people through the eyes of Jesus, we begin to love more. And in that love, we begin to see that we can only love the lost from our heart if we see the truth about them that they cannot see. That underneath the mess is a lost son or daughter. That underneath the mess is a lost son or daughter. Moving on in this passage, Jesus says, Ask the Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Very common terminology we used in mission type things like this, yeah? Who are the workers? Anyone who who chooses to serve Jesus. And he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He says, ask the Lord. It starts with prayer. Prayer for the lost, our friends, people on this list. Pray that God would begin to transform their lives. But if you're like me, I also need to pray for myself. That God would also transform my heart for compassion and love. That I would begin to see the lost through the eyes of Jesus. When's the last time that you've wept for the lost? The grief, the sorrow, the unceasing anguish that your friends who are not in a relationship with the king. Weeping God, you can't let them go to hell. I love Miguel. I love Hadi. I love Pedro. I love Steve. Do something. I can't do anything for them. You said that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Rid everything in me so that they can be saved. Are we desperate? Do we even care about the lost and the unreached? I felt those times, but so often I lose sight of this. Keith, don't stop singing that last song. It's such a powerful song that captures the heart of our King who loves people around us people who are not walking in relationship with him. He's desperate for them to come home. But so often, even when I can preach about it, I so often lose sight of this. And then the next, moving on in the chapter 10, a lot of times we read a chapter and then we close the Bible and we go on for the day and we come back and read the next chapter. I love how the message actually translates this, where it says, this prayer that Jesus prayed, it says, this prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into the right fields. He gave them power to kick out the evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and and hurt lives. Jesus sent his 12 harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by traveling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers and don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. Bring health to the sick. Raise the dead. Touch the untouchables. Kick out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. So what is Jesus telling us as we read through this? The part that jumps out at me, it says, don't begin by traveling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. What is Jesus telling us? Now, This may sound crazy coming from the REACH director who works... My my work is to send out short-term missions teams. But I think what Jesus is telling us right here 
is that we don't know, need to go out on some other missions trip somewhere out there. Don't get me wrong. I believe in reach, and I believe, as well as other short-term missions trips and programs, that they have been very effective and very powerful. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think so. And many of us are called to go overseas. Short-term missions can be extremely powerful and transforming in one's life. However, our focus can be so quickly on those out there when God is asking us to be faithful with those right here, right now, wherever we are. And Jesus is saying, here is where we start. Right here. And many times when I give a talk like this, someone will make an assumption, well, I need to join a missions committee or do an outreach project. And while these things can have some minimal results, this is so much more of a plea for all of us to love the people around us wherever we are, the lost, the hurting, those in pain, the people on your list. Now, this doesn't take away the fact that God is calling many people, some of you, here this morning to go to the unreached places of the world. 2.4 billion people, 2.4 billion people are unreached. Over 50,000 people die daily without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Over 50,000 people died yesterday who never heard the name of Jesus as the Messiah. That means they were they were born, they lived their entire life, and they die, and not once have they ever heard the good news of salvation of Jesus as the Messiah. See, that's a cause worth living for. This is a cause worth dying for, but so are your friends around you. But what we often lose sight of is that many mis- what, mis- what many missionaries are doing in those unreached, unengaged places really isn't much different than what you and I can be doing right here at home. God has placed a circle of influence around us, people in our lives, to introduce them to him wherever we are. Think about your friends, your, your, your co-workers, your family, people on this list who are not following Jesus. Recognize that Jesus did not call us to convert the world, but to love the others the way We've been loved. And instead of despising people who are broken by sin, you'll be touched by the depths of bondage that holds them captive, that they're harassed and they're helpless. And to repeat, we can only love the lost from our heart if we see the truth about them that they cannot see. Underneath the mess is a lost son of daughter. One passage that I absolutely love is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, Verses 19 to 23. And here's what he says. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I love it how he says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, 
but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. How do we view the lost? Probably a lot of you have maybe heard this analogy of the bounded set versus the centered set. Let's just talk about this a little bit. The, the, the bounded set is, is where we, we see Jesus. Think of a circle. Imagine there's a circle around me, and Jesus is in the center. And we try to figure out who's in and who's out of this circle. Are they saved? Are they not saved? Is, and who's inside the circle? Who's not inside the circle? That's a question we keep asking. So often what I see happening when we live with that kind of mentality is we begin to focus so much on the circle, on the line, trying to figure out who's in and who's out, that often we walk away from Jesus and some of us even begin to turn our backs to the cross. And what God has been changing in my life is a whole new paradigm where we throw away the circle and instead the question is, Who's pointed towards Jesus? Who's walking towards our King? And when we think about the lost around us, the point is not trying to get them inside the circle. The point is to turn them to Jesus, where they fall down on their knees and worship our King. When we think about discipleship, discipleship isn't trying to make sure somebody stays inside the circle. Discipleship is me putting my arm around Dwayne or Keith and them putting their arms around me and pointing each other towards Jesus. And Jesus is asking you and I to go to the people on this list, to put our arms around them and point them to the King, the King of all kings. Again, God's definition of what really matters is pretty straightforward. He measures our lives by how we love. In fact, your most meaningful work in your life may not be the big things you do, but in the one small person who you choose to love. And can you imagine what it would be like someday when you're in heaven and to think of having someone come up to you sobbing and thanking you for introducing them to Jesus, that they are with you in heaven because of the crucial role you played in their life. Let's move on to the third story. This is actually a vision that a man named William Booth had back in the 1800s. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He had a powerful, life-changing vision from God as, they traveled on, as he traveled on a train in England. Now, I know that reading a story isn't typically the most effective way to communicate from the, from, from the stage up here to all, all of you but it's such a powerful vision that I'm going to read parts of this vision to you right now that can be life-changing. And let's pay careful attention to his words, examine our hearts to see whether we're active participants in the work of God's kingdom or whether we've deceived ourselves into becoming mere spectators. So here's William Booth's vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and waves rose and, and foamed, towered and broke, in that ocean I, saw, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and, and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sang to rise no more. Oops. 
And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its, with its tummet soaring high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually, continually climbing out of the angry ocean. I saw that a few of those who were already safe in the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach this place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly knew which gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments, but only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astonishing concern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge, because they lived right there in full sight of it, and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regu regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor, drowning creatures was described. The occupants of this platform were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed day and night in trading and business, in order to make gains, storing up their savings in boxes and safes and the like. Many of them spent their time amusing themselves with throwing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of, cl of cloth or in play playing music or in dressing themselves in different styles and walking about to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taking up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already be been rescued. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed to me even more strange than anything that had gone on before in this strange vision. I saw that some of these people on the platform whom this wonderful being had called to, wanting them to come and help him in his difficult task of saving his perishing creatures, were always praying and crying out to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time with them and, and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters he had written them. Some wanted him to come and make them feel more secure in the rock, so secure that they would be quite sure that they should never slip off the rock again into the ocean. Numbers of others wanted him to, come, to make them feel quite certain that they would really get off the rock and enter the mainland someday, because as a matter of fact, it was well known that some had walked so carelessly as to lose their footing and had fallen back into the stormy waters. So these people used to meet and get up as high on the rock as they could, and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, come to us, come and help us. And all the while, he was down by his spirit among the poor, struggling, drowning creatures in the angry deep, with his arms around them, trying to drag them out and looking up oh so longingly, but all in vain, 
to those on the rock, crying to them with his voice, all hoarse from calling, come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. The sea was that ocean of life. The sea of real, actual human existence. The lightning was a gleaming of piercing truth coming from Jehovah's throne. The thunder was a distant echoing of the wrath of God. Those multitudes of people shrieking and struggling and agonizing in the stormy sea was the thousands and thousands of poor harlots and harlot makers, of drunkards and drunkard makers, of thieves, liars, blasphemers, and ungodly people of every kindred, tongue, and nation. The handful of fierce, determined ones who were risking their own lives and saving the perishing were true soldiers of the cross of Jesus. That mighty being who was calling to them from the midst of the angry waters was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is struggling and interceding to save the dying multitudes about us and calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come to him and help him. Will you go? Look for yourselves. The surging sea of life, crowded with perishing multitudes, rolls up into the very spot on which you stand. Leaving the vision, I come now to speak of the fact that all who are not on the rock are in the sea. Look at them from the standpoint of the great white throne and what a sight you have. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is through his Spirit in the midst of this dying multitude struggling to save them. And he's calling you to jump into the sea, to go right away to his side, to help him in the holy strife. Will you jump? That is, will you go to his feet and place yourself absolutely at his disposal? That's William Booth's vision. What a powerful vision of the lost all around us. Let's go back now to story number one. Back to Schindler's List. We're now to the end of this story, the end of the movie. And in this, at this point, the war is now over. The Allies have won, and suddenly Schindler finds himself on the run because he was actually a registered member of the Nazi party. So we're actually going to watch this clip here right shortly. But let me just explain a little bit what's going to be happening. As he walks out to his car with instructions to Stern, the, his helper, to care for the 1,100 people who are alive and present. But before he leaves, the workers present two things to Schindler. First, they, they present him with a petition that they had put together, signed by all 1,100 of the Jews, expressing their gratitude and, working for the and asking for the Allies' mercy on Schindler in case he happens to get caught. And also earlier, earlier, somehow wanting to express their appreciation, they decided to pull teeth from a few of the workers, melt their gold fillings, cast a ring, and they gave this ring to express their appreciation to Oscar Schindler. The inscription on the ring says, He who saves one life saves the world entire. Let's see what happens. We have written a letter trying to explain things in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. Thank you. 
says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. have saved one more person. I didn't. A person. I could have saved one more person. And I didn't. A person. Only Jesus can save people. He's the one who saves us. We are not responsible for other people's faith, but we are agents who bring his message. A message of hope. A message of love. A message of compassion. Christ's compassion. We don't have to do this under a sense of shame or guilt. 
but are instead moved by the love and compassion of Christ. Unbelievers have no second chance to relive their lives, this time choosing Christ. But we as Christians also get no second chance to live our lives over, this time doing more to help the needy, to love the lost, and invest in the kingdom of God. We have one brief opportunity, a lifetime on earth, to make an impact on God's kingdom. And no matter how much we do in this life, we will still look back and realize how much more we could have done. Like Stern, Jesus will say, you did so much. There will be generations that are alive because of what you have done. So what is one person worth to you? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love and your compassion. Thank you that you are willing to pay the price for each person here in this room. That each person is worth so much in your eyes. May we begin to understand your love, your compassion. And as we understand that, that we can love and have compassion for those around us in the same way. May you break our hearts for the things that break yours, that you would transform our eyes, that we could see the lost, the poor, the needy, the people in that raging storm and in the ocean, the way that you see them. And maybe may we be willing to go wherever you ask us to go, to do whatever you ask us to do, all for your name, for your glory and honor. And I pray for all the people that are written on this list. So many different people who have been thought of this morning who are not walking with you. May you bring about more compassion and love in the hearts of each person in this room to reach out to those people in this list. That this list can be an absolute good. That this list is life. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name, amen.